Good morning, beloved. You may have not known this about me, but if I wasn't wearing my incredibly thick glasses, I could not tell the difference between Bill Pinalto and my wife from where I'm standing. They're different skin color, height, hair, irrelevant. All I'd see is blur. Maybe some of you relate. We visually impaired people are dependent on help to see, dependent on help from outside of us to see. We need doctors to find just the right glasses for us or everything will be fuzzy. Yet as needy as I am, I argue this. We all need infinitely more help to see Jesus clearly than I need help to see my wife clearly. None of us is born with 2020 spiritual vision. As our passage will show us today, you cannot tell the difference between Jesus and Satan if not for the grace of God. Just as I need glasses to see anything clearly, we need God's help daily to see Jesus clearly. Last week in Luke 10, we read Jesus say, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Let us pray for God to bless our eyes as we read his word now. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you needy this morning. Please bless our eyes by filling us with your spirit that we may behold marvelous things about your son Jesus in your word. And may we never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 10, verse 38. We're going to walk through four different scenes, one at a time. Each scene will give us a different picture of seeing Jesus rightly or wrongly. And before the end of the text, we'll be able to answer this question. If only God can help us see Jesus clearly, what does that mean for me. Scene one of our passage illustrates that even believers see Jesus with differing levels of accuracy. When a woman named Martha receives the privilege of hosting him. Can you imagine Jesus visiting your home? Martha is probably as welcoming as you would be. Jesus, welcome to my humble abode. Make yourself at home. And Jesus does and begins teaching. The only thing that beats dinner and a movie is dinner and a sermon by Jesus. And so Martha is about to throw the house party of the millennium until Martha's hospitality plans fall apart. She had a vision on how to serve Jesus that required the help of her sister Mary. But Mary didn't know she was needed for Martha's will to be done. 
So Mary just enjoyed the show and listened to Jesus. That's when Martha's welcoming spirit turns accusatory. Follow along in your Bibles as I read Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 40. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. When Martha gets news, Jesus is coming to her house, and she begins to imagine how the night will go. She probably doesn't fantasize about accusing Jesus of being uncaring. But that's where it goes. Lord, she says, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Martha's good desire to serve Jesus a particular way becomes sinful when her wants become needs. And she begins to see the very one she wanted to please as the perpetrator of her displeasure. While it's Mary who's left her to serve alone, it's Jesus who doesn't care enough to stop distracting Mary. How would you have responded to Martha's accusation if you were a guest in someone's home? How does Jesus respond? Let's see in verses 41 and 42. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I wish we had a recording of Jesus' tone here, but we can make an educated guess. I don't think Jesus said it like, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Typically, when we say someone's name twice in a row, it's tenderly. So in just two words, Jesus answers Martha's accusation that he doesn't care about her. By saying, Martha, Martha. Jesus is saying in the most intimate way, I do care about you. And because I care, I'm going to shift your attention to the true cause of your frustration. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What is a portion? A part of something, right? Like a portion of food. You don't eat all the food prepared, you eat a portion of it. So what does Jesus mean when he calls himself the good portion? If Martha knows her scripture, she may hear Jesus' words through the lens of several Old Testament texts. The first five books of the Bible use the word portion mostly like we do, referring to food, land, and inheritance. But when God divides the promised land, Between the 12 tribes of Israel, he gives nothing to the tribe of Levi and says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. 
prophets soon, to begin, soon begin to pick up this language in their writing. In Psalm 73, Asaph sees the wicked prospering and envies them. But he ultimately prays to God, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. How does Martha see Jesus? In verse 40, she calls him Lord. She wants to serve him, which is great. Martha's error is seeing Jesus mainly as someone to give to, rather than someone to receive from. She needs Jesus' teaching more than Jesus needs her serving. God graciously allows Mary to see Jesus clearly to begin the visit. God then uses Mary to help Martha see Jesus clearly by the night's end, which is where scene one ends. In scene two, Jesus' disciples also choose the good portion and receive teaching from Jesus on how to pray. Jesus teaches them the Lord's Prayer, which might catch you off guard because the Lord's Prayer in Luke is shorter than the more famous version you know in Matthew. They were taught at different times. In Matthew, Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, he teaches the Lord's Prayer in response to being asked how to pray. Luke's emphasis is also different. Jesus doesn't only teach what to pray for, he also expounds who to pray to. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not give up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his imprudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How does Jesus 
encourage his disciples to pray. By appealing to the willingness of their father to give to them. Do you pray to God as father, as Jesus teaches his disciples to? Do you see the father as big-hearted, whose impulse is to give to his beloved sons and daughters? If you annoy your friend by asking for bread at midnight and receive the bread because of your persistence, how much more will your heavenly father, who never sleeps, give to his children happily? And what does Jesus say the father wants to give to his beloved children most? Verse 13, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? They pray to a Father who gives himself, his own Holy Spirit, to his children. You may wonder, why does Jesus' teaching on prayer end with encouragement to ask for the Holy Spirit when that request didn't make it into the Lord's Prayer? Why does God want me to pray for the Holy Spirit? Where did that come from? Luke is setting up a contrast between the Holy Spirit and unclean spirits in the next scene. Scene two ends with Jesus teaching his disciples to pray for the Holy Spirit. Scene three shows how wrongly someone without the Holy Spirit is capable of seeing Jesus. The Spirit and the grace of God are all that stand between you and believing Jesus is satanic. This is proved in the following verses when Jesus casts a demon out of a man and people accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, another name for Satan. Let's read of this blasphemy in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 23. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe, But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Did you follow Jesus' argument there? Number one, why would Satan give me the power to cast out his own servants? Number two, If I cast out demons by Satan, your own sons cast out demons the same way. 
would you make the same accusation of them? No. So they would condemn you for your slander. Therefore, verse 20, if it is not by the finger of Satan I cast out demons, it is by the finger of God. Jesus is here references one of the ten plagues of Egypt when Moses turns the dust of Egypt into gnats. Pharaoh's magicians cannot replicate the act with their secret arts and tell Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Jesus' eyewitness accusers are more blind than Pharaoh's magicians and mistake the finger of God for the finger of Satan. How? How can someone witness the power of God, recognize it as power, and be so blind to its source? Jesus explains using a parable in verses 24 to 26. Look with me there. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesus warns that a life swept and put in order is increasingly under the influence of unclean spirits, if not filled by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew's account of this story, he reveals it was the Pharisees who accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Their outwardly clean lives meant nothing for their ability to see Jesus as he is. Inwardly, they are compromised. That should change how we think about sin, shouldn't it? Where does Satan have the strongest foothold? Among the social outcasts whose dirt is obvious to all? Or among the pristine who seem more ethical than some Christians you know? If sin at its root is rejection of God, the most kind people we know may be the most corrupt. If their kindness toward others says, I don't need God to love. I don't need God for anything. Forget that fairy tale. Clean-cut people seeing Jesus clearly is no less of a miracle than a prostitute seeing Jesus clearly. Someone doesn't need to be possessed by a demon to be under the influence of Satan. Ephesians 2 says, all who are dead in sin follow Satan. We read earlier in 2 Corinthians, he has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. I think this is why Luke places these two stories back to back. First, Jesus saying to pray for the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus subtly teaching that the Pharisees follow unclean spirits. Luke's reader is left realizing, I need the Holy Spirit. 
Our need is explained more in the fourth and final scene of our sermon text. Luke chapter 10, verses 27 to 36. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But here's humanity's problem. We all have bad eyes. Jesus is right in front of these people. He's preaching. Everyone who hears him is in a fully lit room. They don't reject him for lack of light. They reject him for lack of sight. They seek a sign. As they hear a sign, the word of God coming from his mouth. That's why Jesus compares them to the sinful city of Nineveh. Verse 30, as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. How did Jonah become a sign? God sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach repentance. The sign God gives to Nineveh is Jonah's preaching. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. If Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, how much more should those who hear the words of Jesus repent? They should be blessed people. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. They hear it, but they cannot keep it. Because without the Spirit of God, the Word of God falls on blind eyes, and bodies are left full of darkness. Remember what Jesus prayed in the last chapter. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
If you're reading that as the recipient of Luke's letter, you got to be thinking, well, if I can only know the Father and Son, if they choose to reveal one another to me, then what is there for me to do? What's the real difference between Mary and Martha, other than the Father chose to reveal Jesus as the good portion of Mary first? What's the real difference between the Pharisees and the disciples? In verse 35, Jesus says, Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Be careful how. This tension is resolved by Luke placing the Lord's prayer where he does. He's helping his readers know what to do with their blurry vision of Jesus. Pray to the big-hearted Heavenly Father who just loves to give his spirit to those who ask for him. The big idea of the sermon is this. To see Christ clearly, the Father must give us his spirit. And where does that leave us? We throw up our hands, admit our utter inability to see Jesus clearly, and pray to the Father that the Spirit would give us healthy eyes. And Jesus offers God's children assurance that such a prayer will be answered. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Is this church not evidence? How many walking miracles are among us who were blind, wretched, God-rejecting sinners, but now see because of amazing grace alone? Believers know the Father gives generously his spirit because that's what made them see Jesus as Savior For those of us who have loved ones who do not see Jesus clearly, I pray this reality comforts you that Christ Jesus came to seek and save the blind. I pray that your speaking of Christ would be a sign to them that the Spirit uses to open their eyes. You may wonder, if you're already a Christian, why do I need to ask for the Holy Spirit if I already have the Holy Spirit? In Ephesians 5, Paul commands readers whom he calls saints to be filled with the Spirit. In Acts, believers are filled with the Spirit at different times. So what happens to those who the Spirit indwells when they're Filled with the Spirit. Among many good things, most importantly, they see Jesus more clearly. To be filled with the Spirit is to increasingly know Jesus as he's made himself known in Scripture. 
to increasingly treasure Jesus as the good portion. Receive today the lesson Martha learned. Believer, you are a servant of God, but you're not primarily a servant of God. Most central to your identity is your adoption as a son or daughter of the Father and a fellow heir of your king brother, Christ Jesus. God did not create you because he needed served. In eternity past, the Father, Son, and Spirit lacked nothing. They were as happy as they would ever be, Father, loving Son, Son, loving Father, by the Spirit. God did not create people to make himself happier based on their fluctuating quality of service. God created people to share himself with them. Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is what Jesus died for, to reconcile sinners to himself, that we might be with him and enjoy him in all his beauty forever. Is that what scripture is to you? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Is it what you were made to do? Fellowship with the triune God who dwells within you. Read scripture. Meditate on scripture until you bleed scripture. Because scripture is the good portion making himself known to you. Open your Bibles. And by faith, trust your Savior is speaking to you. See him in the beginning creating and choosing a people for himself. Hear the psalmist sing of him and the prophets foretell his coming. See him as a baby in the manger, humbling himself more than humanly possible. See him touching lepers and preaching good news to all peoples. See him nailed to the cross Hear his screams for you. They're the reason those in him will never pay for a single sin. Hear the crowd mocking him as he purchases your peace with God. See him give the second sign of Jonah. As the great fish swallowed Jonah So the grave swallowed Jesus, but as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, Jesus rose from the belly of the grave on the third day. See him send the apostles and birth the church. Hear the epistles he authorized for the strengthening of the church. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, because hearing Jesus is the good portion who will not be taken away from you because he sealed it with his blood. It's why a friend of a Christian once said of him, 
Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. If that's not your story, feel not condemnation. For Jesus does not say to you, get it together, Martha. He says to his church, my bride, my bride, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Choose the good portion, which will not be taken away from you. Ever, when we've been there a thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Have you begun, friend? Partake in the eternal life now that the saints will experience forever, knowing God, knowing a father who holds the world in the palm of his hand, yet stoops to lend an ear to his beloved children. Knowing Jesus, who is the supreme ruler of the universe, yet responds to his accusatory subjects, Martha, Martha. Beloved, don't let Jesus' reign from heaven make you forget. When you go home today, Jesus will be in your house, closer to you than he was to Mary when she sat at his feet. In fact, he will be in your car on the drive home. He's here right now, the King of kings and Lord of lords, because as he reigns from heaven, he's in every believer by his spirit. It's not like he's up there reigning and we're down here with the spirit. To be indwelt by the Spirit is to be indwelt by the Son and the Father because he's the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of the Father. Therefore, asking for the Spirit is asking to be filled with all the fullness of the triune God. Let us pray that the Father would give us his Spirit to grant us eyes to sit at the feet of Jesus every moment of every day. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this sign you've given us in your word that Jesus is our good portion. But if left to ourselves, we will see Jesus as just another part of our lives by lunchtime. Please fill us with your spirit Give us healthy eyes to see him as our portion until we see him face to face. And in the moments our vision blurs, remind us of our need and your open arms. We love you because you first loved us. Help us to love you more with the very love of your son. In his precious name I pray, amen.